Um, but surveys um, are showing that rates of decline have just been dropping naturally over the years anyway. Yeah, well, clients so, are being informed about what it is. And when they yeah. realize it, they, they really don't particularly like the idea. And then as we start to learn more and more about how over the years, these cats that are declawed are actually experiencing a, a plethora of different types of pain that we don't mm. understand and we can't even characterize because they're cats and they don't tell us anything. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Fur Podcast. You were really fast. You could give me more warning. No. <laughs> Your three, two, one was very fast. It was very fast, but yes. you don't know that we say three, two, one. Well, yeah, but it was just fast. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the Fur Podcast, and this is the second episode with the amazing Kelly Saint Denis. Um, and we're talking AFE, but before we start talking, I need to let you, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. So <laughs> the Minnesota Urolith Center uh, analyzes stones uh, all from all over the world, and they just announced they have the 1.5 millionth stone, which I think is amazing. That's 1.5 and then six zeros behind it. So they have analyzed so many stones. What type of stone was the 1.5 million stone, Kelly? Can I guess and say struvite? Okay, Dr. Susan. <laughs> so I'm going to say calcium oxalate because if it was struvite, I will be hugely disappointed. All right. And yes, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a very good point. And Dr. Susan is right. However, I have to disappoint you now because the second question that I have is... So what do you think the percentage is of struvite versus calcium oxalate? So it was a calcium oxalate and it was in the D word, not in the ah, cat. Okay. But uh, they also analyzed how much percentage of cat stones and D stones were struvite versus uh, calcium oxalate. And how much do you think that percentage is in cats? Do you mean in, in that whole 1.5 million or? Yes. Oh, well, that might. No, no. As a matter of fact, in, in the, the last year. In the last year. Last oh, okay. year. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So after all the information that yes. everybody has, what's the percentage now in cats of struvite stones? <sighs> that are submitted. We have to be careful because we're talking about. They are about... submitted. So yeah. they're whacked out of yes. the bladder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess it's 40%. Okay, Dr. Kelly. I made that up. I was going to guess 50, which is also disappointing, but that was yeah. Oh, my gee. So the, the previous <laughs> answer was, was for Dr. Susan. This one is for Dr. Uh, Dr. Oh. Kelly because it is 50%. Oh. And as a matter of fact, it's oh. increasing. <gasps> it oh. used to be 45%. It's 50% now. So, and, and we all know that if there is one animal where you can treat struvite stones with a medical diet or a therapeutic diet, it's cats because there's hardly ever an infection. So it is so frustrating that the numbers are going up again. And so if we can do, and we need to refer to our, uh, you know, uh, 
our our stone facebook page and whatever we do we yeah. need to keep on educating people yeah what yeah. happened to our, our no more struvite yola how many times have we talked about this i know Make i know i think our audience knows it but still there's so many veterinarians that use surgery to remove struvites mm -hmm. um and uh, and we need to celebrate the 1.5 million stone that it's a calcium oxalate mm -hmm. but yes it we're not done yet so the good news is we can still keep on lecturing about yeah. stones and cats. <laughs> I guess we have work to do, not huh? there yet. We but definitely have work to do. This is not what we're talking about today. This was just a little hot news uh, from mm -hmm. uh, from from the cat world. Um, and the quiz. And the quiz, <laughs> yes, that we have. But we have the amazing Dr. Kelly St. Denis here. Hello, Kelly. So excited to be here with you guys. I just love this podcast. So thank you for oh. inviting me. That's the best thing to say. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and we still have fun doing it, even though mm -hmm. we've done. We're at lot. number one hundred plus. I don't know yeah, what it was. So, but... so the last time we had the last two were celebration ones. Doctor yes. Susan and I did them uh, together, and uh, we uh, we asked everybody to celebrate with us because we're so proud of each other that we made a hundred podcasts together. One hundred. So yeah. it's not. It's one, not 1.5 million, but we're getting there. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> no, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we're up. Or we're somewhere between 105 and 110 ish. It had a yeah. large number of downloads too, wasn't that also? Yes, a... 100k, 100k yeah. downloads. You yeah, listen to one. Cool. I mean, I'm so Ooh. impressed that you remember everything. I so, <laughs> yeah, that's it's crazy those numbers if you think about it. I, I just yeah. like. Oh wow! But uh, that's that's good. But it also shows that lots of people are interested in cats yeah. mm -hmm. and cat medicine, and and we love that. So uh, we uh, we also are are proud to be listed on most of the now most popular podcast for veterinarians. So that's good. So mm -hmm. uh, very very good. And um, I think that uh, support of cat vets has been wonderful too. So we we have interviewed many many cat vets. And I always say the best cat fats live in Canada. Yeah. Yay. Yay. We think so. <laughs> yes. So there's at least six or seven super famous ones. And then there's lots of wonderful other cat veterinarians uh, mm -hmm. in Canada for sure. So yep. we're talking about AFP, which is a North American, I guess, uh, North American slash LATAM uh, organization. Yeah. Or is LATAM part of ISFM? No, we have expanded down into South America and we're expanding into South You're America. Conquering I guess I the say. world and mm -hmm. conquering. Yeah, so the ISFM has everything else. Yes. But we all work together really yeah. well. And it's just we're all in the same agenda. So it's yeah. <laughs> I've I've always thought American Association was a bit of a misleading name, right? Because yeah. yeah. If you think about it as the Americas. Yeah. Yes. Then maybe, maybe. although I don't think yeah, I guess Canadians we could we could live with that. Yeah. Yeah. We have to, or otherwise I can't be president and you can't be past president. <laughs> yeah, you can't complain about that too much. Then. No, I no, guess. no, um, but we love AFP too because of so many great programs. So can, can we talk about toolkits now? Now we can talk about toolkits because oh, the last time we talked about their amazing certificates, which I recommend everybody to do. Like I said, I'm going through them right now. There's wonderful educational material there for multiple levels of, mm. 
of the veterinary healthcare team, and you always learn something. You know, so I gave the example of the blankets. Uh, I thought that was a great idea, but there's mm -hmm. multiple other ideas that I got from from going through them. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, everybody knows that I work for Hills Pet Nutrition, and I'm promoting really hard at at Hills too for people that that think about cats and think about you know cat food and that sort of things that they should go through these yeah. these modules to learn uh you know what cats needs are so yeah. I, I think it's great that you do that yola and we tend to forget a little bit about industry right when we when we think about programs like this but the veterinary uh industry is full of veterinarians and it's full of veterinary technicians and yep. uh, going through programs um, like these, like the certificate program that AAFP has, um, is a way for them to understand better what, what a species needs are or what challenges veterinarians face. I, I think it's great that you know, we, we need to promote that more within industry and, and encourage some of the stakeholders to get on board. I agree, yeah. There you go, Kelly, a new initiative. Exactly, <laughs> and now it is Tuka time. Yay! We're crazy, apparently, at the AFP. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think I think it's a great thing. Um, of course, AFP has been putting out practice guidelines like since forever, almost mm -hmm. 20 years worth now, close to it anyway. Yep. So I think they're known for their practice guidelines, but only in the last, what, two or three years have the toolkits been coming out? So yeah. tell us, like, uh, why did that start and what was the thinking behind doing that? I honestly don't know what started it. I think we did start with the diabetes toolkit. Um, I've been lucky to have been on well, a significant number of them. I've lost count. Uh, but yeah, I started with the diabetes uh, panel, the toolkit panel. So we started with that one. And I don't know where it came from, but it's just a really nice practical idea. People are online now and you really, it's so nice to be able to just pull that up and look at different aspects of the disease and get some troubleshooting tips and what's the dosage of this if the blood sugar is this for example you know and as you know we also have our retrovirus toolkit yeah on the new guidelines um so this is easier for people to reach out to that than trying to re necessarily read a whole guideline or try to find that little bit of information they need that's buried in the guideline maybe that they can't find easily so yeah, it's really a quick reference, isn't it? It's kind of the highlights and, and a quick reference. And, and I like that, um, I like a couple of things uh, about it. One is that while each toolkit has a page, the page is divided into sections, right? So you can, yeah. let's say if you're, if you're interested in, in uh, diabetes, if your question's uh, about a diabetic cat, then you can go to the diagnosis section, um, you can go to the highlights of the treatment, you can go to the troubleshooting. So it's just very, very clearly um, divided. And um, you know, none of the sections are very long, right? They're all, they're all meant to be easily uh, digestible and easily read. And the other thing is that they're free. They're that's free. just amazing. Yeah. And you don't have to be a member exactly. So yeah, anybody you know, can that's, access them. That's something that I've always admired about AFP is that uh, they allow access to all of their guidelines and now all of the toolkits to anybody. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't underestimate how important that is. I think that's really important to reach outside of just the, you know, the in the 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 in group, if you will, the group that's inside AFP. It reaches much farther. Yeah, because not, I mean, everybody has to have so many different veterinary memberships. I think after a while, the costs go up. You know, if you remember this, sure. that, that, and that. So maybe you can't be a member of the AFP and you're in a cat dog practice. But if you can access that stuff, then there it is for you. It's there. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Do you know how many downloads there are normally when from those toolkits? Do you have any idea how many people really download them? Uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I know the diabetes one had really good was well very well received so this is why we continue to do them um, mm. and and they're increasing i mean the retrovirus one was relatively new last year so the numbers weren't as high but it's mm -hmm. still new uh, so yeah don't know well, there, the there's quite a list of them now so diabetes was first and the retrovirus one um, both kelly and i worked on on those guidelines so that toolkit's there and then um, the claw friendly ones that was last year too, right, Kelly? Yes, and that and that came out uh, from a lot of the work that we put into the claw friendly um, information for clients uh, for veterinarians. So as as you are aware, our cat friendly practices as of July will no longer be um, allowed to be cat friendly practice if they still offer declaw as a surgical service. Um, so we put that cat friendly toolkit, cat claw friendly toolkit together to help veterinarians um, ease out of doing declaws to understand what the impact is, to understand natural scratching behavior so they can help their clients live with clawed cats. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and I know um, it's a difficult subject to talk about declawing, mm -hmm. um, but we have to. Uh, and I know for a long time, AFP was criticized by some people because they didn't sooner move to that position, right? Of saying, yeah. we, you know, you can't be a cat friendly practice. Um, if you still practice declawing. So um, uh, we're there finally, which is great. Um, but I wonder what, what, what do you think, uh, what do you think were the reasons that, that made it difficult to reach that decision, like to come to that point and say, and uh, you know, I, I, I have some ideas of my own about, cause it's not an easy decision to do that. Well, as, as, a, uh, as an association, we want to support all of our members. And of right. course, there are still members who do offer declaws, whether it's, you know, very often or almost never at all. Um, and, and so, you know, we wanted to continue to support those people. And we've continued to provide them with information and guides to try and move away from declawing. Um, yeah. But at some point, you know, the, the balance has to shift. Yes. And I think over the last few years, since I've been on the board of directors, it's been a, a constant part of our conversation. And it's just taken us this amount of time to say, how can we still support those members who, you know, are trying to move away from declawing, maybe they're still declawing, um, but let's give them every single possible support that they, they can ask for to, to be able to not declaw anymore. Uh, you know, and obviously there's going to be some, a little bit of unrest <laughs> there well, are still people that are upset that we made this move yes. uh, but generally speaking it, I think it was it was due and we needed to do it yeah and I, I'm glad and I, I think that the, the timing is right um, I know that when I was on the board we were always worried about veterinarians who were in practices where it really wasn't their decision whether or not mm -hmm. declawing surgery was done right it's yeah. you know it's not always your decision about what happens in the practice um, but surveys um, are showing that rates of decline have just been dropping naturally over the years anyway. Yeah, well, clients so, are being informed about what it is, and when they yeah. realize it, they, they really don't particularly like the idea. And then as we start to learn more and more about how over the years, these cats that are declawed are actually experiencing a, a plethora of different types of pain that we don't mm -hmm. understand and we can't even characterize because they're cats and they don't tell us anything. Um, but, you know, we're getting more and more information. And I think, I think that's the, the key. And that's always been the key for me. I mean, I, I declawed in my practice initially, and I stopped years ago, because I was seeing these cats come back with evidence of 
amputee pain. And so we, you know, it, for me, it was like, I can't do this anymore because I can't predict no matter how good I thought I was at doing the surgery and how much analgesia I used around it, I couldn't predict who was going to have negative side effects and when. So mm -hmm. we know human amputation, it can take over 10 years before you actually have phantom pain. Mm -hmm. You might be perfectly fine for years. And so how can anybody predict what these cats are experiencing when we're taking all 10 toes off? Basically? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I know as a surgeon, you, you didn't do orthopedics, but you, you also come from Europe, right? Where decline was never a thing. So that must have been a bit of a, you know, a culture change in vet medicine, right? When you came to the US. Yeah, so that, it was really interesting when I came here because, you know, we only declaw for medical indication and we call, I mean, then it's more, most of the time it's one toe. Yeah. Uh, if there's a tumor on the toe, you take the toe. Uh, so when I came here and it was such common practice, I really didn't understand why people did it. Why don't buy, buy a scratch pole or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I, I did realize it's so much ingrained. I never liked the yes. surgery. I, as a surgeon, I think it is, it, it, it there's there's ways to do it where you can kind of minimize the trauma but it's very traumatic mm. uh, and it's very painful for the cat in the beginning although people say it's not that painful you see that the cats are uncomfortable afterwards mm. um, and then um, and and you know some of the techniques were so barbaric you know using nail clippers for instance it's just like you, you can't even think about it. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I agree with Kelly. There were at the end really good analgesic parts to it uh, that could minimize the trauma and the pain. But still, I'm not a big fan of that surgery at all. So I was happy that, that people started deciding uh, to, to remove that from practice. And I think it is, it's daring for AAFP to make that standpoint because... You, you probably have members that are totally fine with declawing and, yeah. and that have done it for 30, 40 years and have seen minimal problems, et cetera. And I understand that. But the question is, it's not if you feel okay with that. It's the question is if the cat feels okay. And mm. I think that that's where the issue is. We cannot ask the cat and it's not really a necessary procedure. Mm. I do have to say that there's lots of other procedures that I can mention that have kind of this same issue. Sure, sure. And, and so there is, uh, you know, we often do uh, these corrective surgeries because of us and not because of the animal itself. And yeah. so there's, a, there's an ethical discussion that's much bigger here. Yeah. Um, and, and it's good that we open up this discussion and yeah. that, that we take these decisions while thinking about this ethical, uh, these different, different ethical standpoints. I think the other huge misconception that goes on is that people think you can't live with a clawed cat. Mm. Um, and, and so that's what that claw friendly toolkit does have some information about the environment that you put them in. And, and, and most cats don't scratch inappropriately if they're given the appropriate things to scratch on and, and, and provided with the right environment and resources. So it, we really need to step back and give cats the benefit of the doubt instead of damning them from the time they're 16, 20 weeks of age when they have their spay neuter and say, oh, we have to take their claws as well. Mm. I think the more people I had giving their cats chances and not declawing, they would come back to me and say like, the cat doesn't scratch on anything but a scratch post. And you were right. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's the other misconception that we really need to move our minds past. And the, the toolkit, the the, um, the claw friendly um, toolkit that's available for free, uh, 
uh, on the AFP website, which is chatbets.com, by the way. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. It does. I, I just pulled it up now. It has a great client resources section, right? So um, a, a lot of practices uh, have, have uh, slowly made their way out of decline. Yeah. Right. So it, it's often uh, easier for the team members and for the clients um, if they uh, start with a lot of education first. Yeah. And and the, uh, the the claw friendly toolkit has some wonderful resources there for clients. So, you know, if you're in a practice where, uh, well, uh, a lot of our clients just need help managing the natural scratching behavior anyway. Yes. But, you know, if you're in a practice that's looking to further decrease how many declaw surgeries you do with a mind to getting out of it then um, there's great resources there. Yeah, and we, sorry, Yola, we, we've just tried to provide clinics with that information too. We've done a couple of options, like you're gonna quit cold turkey or you're right. gonna the six months, here's the guidance of the things you need to start telling your staff and your clients and, and work it out. So, yeah, that's, so that's great. In, 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 yeah, I can also imagine that there are people listening right now that are in a clinic that's absolutely not ready, but they mm. are. So what, how, how should they, proceed. So what are some tips that they could do to maybe convince their clinic of doing different because or take small steps towards a more cat friendly uh, procedure? Well, depending on where they're at in the practice, they they certainly can start to educate clients and, um, you know, when talking to clients about scratching behavior on the phone or in person, they can provide some tips that might help people not want to pursue declaw, you know, and obviously, some employees are not going to want to step on anybody's toes that way. So if their bosses are adamant that they, they want to and offer declaw as an easy option, you know, then I guess there's, there's that role that you have to play to start educating the people around you and discussing it with them and maybe asking people to read these things and see what they think. Uh, it, it can be difficult because there are people who work in practices that, like you said, don't want to be declawing or taking care of a cat after it's declawed, but they, that's their job, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's very challenging. Yeah. But I, I think you, I think if you're in that position, you do have to realize that kind of the first time you make an attempt to start changing people's minds, you're, it's, it's only going to be so successful, right? Some people are ready to hear that and some aren't, but you shouldn't drop it. You know, if, if, no. if you feel strongly about it, then you need to keep it top of mind uh, yeah. and, and look for resources like this. I, you know, I love that the toolkit actually in quite a bit of detail outlines a couple of different practice plans, you know, to help you reduce the amount of declaws that you do. So it's coming at it, not from a judgmental point of view, which I think has been a lot of the mindset up until now. And, yeah. you know, we, we know anything to do with human behavior. If you want to modify human behavior, you can't do it through judgment. No, right? You have to do it through support. Right. And so and that, that's the route that this takes. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and on the other side, now there are certain uh, areas, especially in Canada, where the laws behind it. Yeah. Too, eh? So yeah. things are changing. Yeah. Now, a lot of the provinces in Canada have banned it, not the one that Susan and I live in yet, but no. we'll get there. No, but you know, I think just uh, the, at least the experience of um, my practices, I mean, we haven't declawed for many years, but even when, even just before we stopped declawing, I, I looked at the statistics, you know, from previous years and we could, it was just dropping like a stone, the, the number of requests we got for it. So, you know, at, at least where I practice and I suspect in some other areas too, it's been naturally dropping off anyway, right? So if there's a, you know, that's something to look at, just look at your practice statistics and see if it has been dropping off. So 
you may be able just to ride that wave out and the ride it out. Yeah. When like clients understand better and I think yeah. veterinarians understand and the more we understand about cat behavior and why cats scratch on things that we don't want them to, it's just another behavior that we can guide and understand and change without having to do anything aggressive. So what about other toolkits sure. that are available? Yes. Yeah, so the newest one um, that, of course, I've been waiting since last episode to talk about um, is the hypertension one. And the reason I'm excited about it is that hypertension is still really tough um, in cats. It's still, it's still tough to diagnose it. Not the treating of it part so much, I don't think, but the diagnosis is still so tricky. Yeah. So to, you know, to have some good um, at-a-glance resources, uh, yeah. I'm, that's why I'm very excited. And I have to tell Dr. <laughs> Kelly that we just spent two episodes of the podcast on this hypertensive topic. So I'm really happy to reassess it with you, Dr. Kelly. <laughs> I don't think the toolkit was out then, was it? Or was it just out? Oh, I think it was. It was just yeah. out. Yeah, no, I'm really happy that, that, with this one. And I, yeah, as you mentioned, Susan, it's, it's something that we don't diagnose very often. And one of the major hurdles is actually getting over wanting to take blood pressure from a cat, right? How do you reduce their stress? How do you get a cuff on a cat? Do you, all that kind of stuff about getting the cat to sit still and, and knowing then if the numbers are even real because cats are generally stressed in the vet clinic. So that toolkit has some really fantastic information in it that um, Ellen Carosa, who's an LVT yeah. in the States, uh, contributed right. videos and cuffs do's and don'ts and just a plethora of information. For, for the most part, because technicians and then some veterinarians are going to be taking the, the, the blood pressure readings, it's really practical. It's, it's really nice. She's done a fantastic job with all that stuff. So we're yeah. very happy to have her on there. And she and I are doing a lecture in our spring uh, conference on hypertension. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's definitely an area where we can do better. You know, I, I, in, in feline medicine, and uh, I know it's I know it's hard. It's not been the easiest thing to to try to tackle, but toolkits like this um, will make it easier for practices who really aren't doing it routinely to get started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they need and, to develop a comfort level. Yeah, you do, um, yeah. and it's okay if you do it wrong for a while. Just start doing it. Right? Mm -hmm. Just start putting dry bam lodipine on the first uh, number. <laughs> that's you know something. Yeah we see a lot as a, as I'm a consultant on VIN and, and sometimes, you know, the numbers get taken and there's one or two numbers and then yes. the, they might think the cat's hypertensive, but if you let them have a few more readings taken, yeah. the numbers will drop and we don't yeah. overdiagnose that way. So I think a good way to get comfortable is to do blood pressures on a lot of cats that are not likely to be hypertensive. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So, so, you know, break yourself in on those, like, you know, three-year-old kind of laid back guys that, you know, there's, uh, there's a, a an extremely remote risk that that cat is hypertensive, mm -hmm. right? And that allows you to play around with it and get comfortable and also to see that, you know, even in a normal healthy cat, the numbers may be a bit high. And then as you keep trying, they get lower and lower. So yeah. that's what I, I tell technicians and veterinarians to do is yeah. don't, don't start on the patient where it really matters whether you get mm -hmm. the right answer or not. Right. Start on a patient that, you know, is not hypertensive. And, and then you're also getting that patient used to the cuff so that when yeah. it does matter, you can actually rely on the readings you're getting from that cat too. Yeah, it may help. I think um, we do them so in, infrequently that I'm not sure that the, that they, that they're going to learn or remember very much, you know, if it's, but the more we do it, yeah. 
right? Then eventually, you know, you would think that at least some of the cats are themselves are going to be a little bit more comfortable with the procedure for sure. Mm -hmm. I have the feeling that a lot of home cats now are worried about that they'll be abused by a lot of couples, <laughs> you know, especially the quiet ones. No, you get treats. Treats, treats. are a critical part of taking blood pressure measurements. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yep. Good treats. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, yeah, I hate to say it, but we're all no, so there's one more question left, Dr. Susan. This one is for you. Okay, so what's in the future for AFP, Kelly? We have so much going on right now, and we do have some more toolkits coming out. Um, we have an end of life toolkit coming out. It should be out in the next month or so. That's great. Um, we have our uh, some more guidelines coming out. So the next one, we just published our life stages with the AHA. Yes. So yeah. that's out. Yeah. Yep. And then we're updating our senior guidelines, which are going to be published probably towards the middle to the end of the year. They're ready and just... Yeah pending approvals. So those are exciting. And then we just have so much in terms of online CE right now, because people can't travel. We've got that spring conference coming up where there's three separate days people can sign up for, or they can do all three. So it's spread out over a couple of months. Yeah. So we, there's a lot of stuff going on. Oh, oh that's great. It's never ending. <laughs> it is. I, I know. I it's know for my, my stint as president, yeah. it's yeah. not a, it's not a cushy job. Um, you know, there's always a lot going on. It's a very active organization, but that's also. Yeah. I know when they asked me about changing it, so I would have, I would have another nine months. Someone said, do you want to do this? <laughs> and, I was, and, I, and I was like, yeah, actually I do because I really enjoy it. And I'm, I'm really loving it, even though I'm not getting to, you know, the meetings and getting to see people in person. Um, it has been a really rewarding job. So I, really I know you're it. doing good. You know, you're I doing just want to say you're doing an awesome job. Yeah. Thank and, you. And, and AFP is doing an awesome job too. So really appreciate it. Yes. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Kelly. This was wonderful. Uh, yeah, I'm so you. happy thank that we've got you uh, on the podcast uh, for the first time and now not as host, but as yes. guest. <laughs> that was fun too. That was fun. Yeah. Guest. So and, yeah. And so this is the Pearl Podcast. Uh, if you like what we do, uh, please give us a five-star rating and like us. Uh, you can find more information on perpodcast.net, which is our website. We are on social media with the handle at perpodcast. And we're always excited to talk about cats. We are. So until the next time. See you later. And thank you, Dr. Kelly. Thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at Cat Pet Susan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVE. TSX. 
This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screwbite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.